People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed at home in your Keurig coffee maker with Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods. Just brew it hot over ice and enjoy flavor that's crafted to serve cold. The home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. Episode 256 of the Bowery Boys, Dumbo, life on the Brooklyn waterfront. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're going to a very hip neighborhood in Brooklyn, between the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. A neighborhood named, seemingly, after a flying elephant, (laughs) Dumbo. But it ain't, Greg. It ain't. But it's true that it is one of the city's hippest neighborhoods. I would even say it is one of the city's premier post-industrial, tech-hubby, constantly Instagrammed neighborhoods. (laughs) But Dumbo, of course was not named for Disney's Flying Elephant, but is rather an acronym, a cute way (laughs) of abbreviating down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. So this will be the story of this particular neighborhood's history. Part of this story will focus in particular on the area's glorious industrial years. People today spend millions of dollars on loft apartments in this neighborhood. Lofts that were actually portions of factories, where almost all the contents of the modern pantry were developed. Modern pantry? Mm-hmm. Is that a startup? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and there's an app for that. <laughs> but seriously, Dumbo has been absolutely critical to New York's manufacturing trade. As Greg mentioned, many items, uh, many consumer goods and packaging, in fact, were produced in factories right here, just blocks from the waterfronts. After you listen to this show, I want you, listener, to walk through this neighborhood, the neighborhood of Dumbo, and see it in a completely different light. As a set of miniature cities, clusters of buildings, fortresses to everyday items, items like soap, coffee, paint, and even cardboard boxes. Because all of those things were produced right here in this small neighborhood. Although today, of course, it is defined less by these consumer goods and factories and more by startup spaces, high-end retail and restaurants, and lofty apartment buildings as well, as the neighborhood has undergone a dramatic redevelopment and gentrification process in the past 20 years or so. So our show will actually go from coffee-roasting plants to small-batch cafes. (laughs) Indeed. And those cardboard boxes you were mentioning, well, we go from cardboard boxes and Brillo pad manufacturing to art galleries, and hipsters. How very Dumbo. So grab your small batch coffee. Or your Brillo pad. As we walk the waterfront of Brooklyn's Dumbo neighborhood.
Okay, hey, Dumbo. <laughs> Who are you calling dumb? Bo. <laughs> yeah, they don't just call it down under the Manhattan Bridge. Yeah, I mean, as Jerry Seinfeld famously said, who would want to live in dumb? <laughs> but to situate... Yes, please exactly, situate us, because it seems like the name kind of situates for us. Maybe. Down under Manhattan Bridge Overpass uh-huh. is what Dumbo stands for. That's a lot of words for a, an actually a very small place. A small neighborhood on the Brooklyn waterfront between the Fulton Ferry Landing, right there at the anchorage of the Brooklyn Bridge... And Vinegar Hill and the Brooklyn Navy Yard on the eastern side. So it is really small. It's about 15 blocks on either side of the Manhattan Bridge anchorage, which is kind of situated in the middle of it. And you just used directional terms here. You just said east. When you and I were walking around yesterday, we were constantly getting a little turned around because it can be disorienting. It's very disorienting because the the bridges kind of affect your directional maneuvering through here and it's uh, it can be kind of confusing but it really actually is a, a mostly an an east-west neighborhood with the water to the north right and that is in fact the most important part of the neighborhood today that waterfront is lined with the picturesque brooklyn bridge park for most of our story this waterfront will look quite different than it does today we're basically going back in time and transforming this place of total recreation into heavy industry. So this area is very unique as a New York City neighborhood because it's dominated by industrial architecture, both made of brick and concrete. And those, we're talking that real hands-on kind of industry, mm-hmm. although of course today it's many tech-based industries that have moved into those places. And of course, a great number of these buildings are filled with gorgeous loft apartments with beautiful views. And I just want to underscore that you just said it's 15 blocks. Yeah, like uh, give or take. uh, And then of course with that waterfront, which is a, a portion of the Brooklyn Bridge Park. Which is amazing. I mean, we're talking about a neighborhood that is really quite small. It's only about three blocks off of the water and only five or six blocks wide. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've geographically situated us, but now in terms of the history of the neighborhood, are you going to take us all the way back to the Dutch? Well, just for a couple minutes here. The original Dutch settlement mm-hmm. of Brooklyn, Brooklyn, I think we've said it all manner of, of ways, the Dutch version, uh, the, the Dutch the pronu- <laughs> formed a little southwest of here in 1646 connecting Dutch farms, which were settled out in Long Island, to the waterfront. The crux of all Brooklyn history, the reason that there is a Brooklyn, is because of the ferry service that emanated from that point. That point's a little bit west of our story today, but they're, they're right next to each other. And when did that ferry service start? Well, I mean, almost immediately during, during the Dutch period, because it connected Dutch farmers to the New York marketplace. Mm-hmm. And so it was the old Dutch city that was the formation of Brooklyn formed around that ferry landing. Now, if we isolate this area of Dumbo and in surrounding regions, the first Dutch landowners were named Joris Janssen Repelja and his son-in-law, Han Hansen Bergen. Those are two names. Bergen. Yeah, those are two names, both of them Rapelia and Bergen. Um, you'll see in, in other neighborhoods and on Brooklyn streets today. So they bought all of this land, including the land over by Wallabout Bay, which is a little bit east of here. 
Now, during the English period, a nice little village named Brooklyn developed around here, situated around those ferry docks. And during all of this, the Repelia family still owned the property. Now, Tom, during the Revolutionary War, what side of the conflict do you think the descendants of the Repelia family, what side do you think they were on? Well, I'm going to guess by the tone of your voice here uh, that, and by the fact that they were large landowners, mm-hmm. that they were on the side of the crown. Yes, they were loyalists. Uh-huh. So then they were probably just thrilled uh, to see Washington and his troops head for the ferry docks here. Yeah, in the summer of 1776, during the Battle of Long Island, Uh the first major defeat of Washington in what would become a long, drawn-out war. Now, Washington's army fled to New York across the water from the ferry and from other places around here, because, of course, there were a lot of men fleeing. Flash forward to the year 1783, when all of the British were essentially thrown out or they fled, and then all land that was owned by loyalists was then confiscated and sold. So, goodbye, Repelia. They were were literally repelled from (laughs) their land. They were repelled by Felicia. And then, what, following the war, uh, their land was just parceled off and sold? Yeah, so then the people who bought it next in 1784 would actually forever set the character of this land we know in modern terms today as Dumbo. Right, because we can't really call it Dumbo uh, in 1783 because there is no Manhattan Bridge, there's no Brooklyn Bridge, yeah. <laughs> there's no, there certainly is no BQE. Well, maybe... Instead of saying Dumbo, perhaps you will feel better by calling it by another name, Olympia. Olympia? Yes. It was, for a very, a very small period of time, called the City of Olympia. So the purchasers, in, in this case, of the confiscated land were two men named Comfort Sands and his brother Joshua Sands. Now, they were both prominent men. Comfort mm-hmm. was a founder of the Bank of New York, along with... Alexander Hamilton. His, mm-hmm. Joshua was then later elected member of Congress. Um, so prominent family. Yeah, although, you know, back in the day, they actually had quite a different reputation. According to the book Gotham by Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs, quote, Comfort and Joshua Sands had clerked with city merchants before the revolution, taken part in the resistance of British policy, and left when New York fell in 1776. During the war, they made a fortune in military provisioning. Washington, among others, considered them crooks. And so this dubious duo bought up all of the Repelia farms? Yeah, 160 acres for $12,000. They called this development Olympia, and upon the land, they built the first industrial buildings that this area would see. And they even built some shipping piers on the site and constructed the first rope walk. A rope walk being a rope factory. A place where they manufacture rope. Not some sort of outdoor game or adventure. (laughs) Not a tightrope factory. (laughs) Just a regular rope factory. But obviously it's not called Olympia anymore. So what happened? Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate because it's a a cool name. But there was a confluence of different factors. But it sort of sadly fades into history because by the year 1814, one particular event will set this east side of that ferry landing on a straight and narrow course to total industrialization. And what would that be? 
1814, Brookland Ferry, which is what it had been called, will see its very first steam service initiated at this time, and the ferry landing will be renamed Fulton Ferry. Named, of course, for Robert Fulton, the developer and innovator of the steamboat. Yes. So the very first steam ferry from Uh here uh, was launched on May 10th, 1814. It was hugely successful because suddenly this unpleasant, unwieldy trip between Brooklyn and New York now took 12 minutes. And because because it was regular, they could keep a schedule. And, and it made Brooklyn as a whole much more accessible as a commuter town, and, as a uh, suburb. Yeah, desirable even. The, it inspired all this land development southwest of the ferry landing on, these, on this bluff area that had been named Clover Hill. Well, it soon became known as Brooklyn Heights. <laughs> soon to be the first elegant neighborhood of Brooklyn. So long story short, Fulton Ferry made Brooklyn, which became the city of Brooklyn by state charter in 1834. Fulton Street... The street leading up to the ferry docks. Yes, or rather from the ferry docks into the heart of Kings County. This became a central thoroughfare. East of that is the area that we're speaking about today, the future Dumbo neighborhood. This began then to calcify into a more industrial region. There was some residential life here, of course, maybe of a less desirable nature, of course, than that over at Brooklyn Heights, but it would grow increasingly industrial over the years, especially by the 1830s when a lot of landfill started to be added to the waterfront to create even more land that would become more desirable for companies who would then move in and build their factories. And landfill had already been happening in the 18th century. The Brooklyn waterfront had been expanding um, and extending out into the East River. Yes, it's, it's creating real estate by magic, by using trash. Water Street, in <laughs> fact, in Dumbo, used to be water. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, just two quick things before we move on here. Another huge waterfront property had already popped up just east of the Dumbo area. In the year 1800, came a shipyard for the U.S. Navy, or what we call today Brooklyn Navy Yard. So there was already so much ship traffic Mm-hmm. on the East River coming in and out of this particular area. So that kind of pushes the area more towards industrialization. There's even another more residential area between today's Dumbo and the Navy Yard, and that would be the Vinegar Hill neighborhood. Right, which would, which would be a haven for Irish immigrants, some of whom would work in the industries of the Dumbo area. Because industries by the 1850s would start to significantly expand in the neighborhood, even though there already had been smaller industries in the neighborhood. But really, in the 1850s, and then especially after the Civil War, industry really took off, and they, or their their warehouses and factories, would really help define what we know today as the Dumbo neighborhood. And we're going to give you a tour of some of the most prominent industries of this area in the 19th of the late 19th century and early 20th century. We'll get to that lofty lineup after this. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom 
for the Enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. So, Greg, you took us up to about the 1850s here. Yes. Uh, in this area of today's Dumbo. <laughs> yeah, the area formerly known as Olympia. <laughs> or Repelia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some small industry happening. There are people living here as well, working in the shipyards, working in small industry. And there are still some structures in the neighborhood that date to this period, including a couple on Water Street, number 64 and number 66, that date from the 1850s that are old counting houses. But increasingly, after the Civil War, this would be a neighborhood that was defined by warehouses down by the water and by the docks, and just behind them, on the land side, factories working their way inland. That's fascinating, the fact that there are warehouses Mm -hmm. on the water, and then behind them... Are the factories? So there aren't factories on the water. Right. I mean, it seems kind of obvious if you stop and think about it, but it's something that probably many people hadn't really thought about. Um, The fact that the warehouses tended to be next to the water while factories were a little bit more inland, where the land was much less valuable and where they had much more space to grow. By having the warehouses down on the water, you could ship things directly to those warehouses uh, for storage, even if the businesses themselves were not located here. So many of these import-export businesses were located over in Manhattan, but then they could take the ferry boat over to check in on the goods that were being kept in these warehouses. We should also notice that off of the warehouses were private docks and piers, Another natural benefit of this area is the fact that the East River here is very, very deep. 
So it could accommodate really large ships that would sail over filled with goods uh, for distribution here um, in and out of New York. It's funny that you would use the word natural to describe the East River because by the 1860s, the waterfront has almost no trace of its sort of natural (laughs) splendor, right? It's all piers. It's all warehouses. And and perhaps that's why it's so deep because they built out the land, you Mm -hmm. know, into the actual river. We both went yesterday to the Brooklyn Historical Society's new Dumbo Gallery, which recently opened down in the newly redeveloped Empire Stores building. The gallery opened last year uh, in 2017. They have a brand new exhibit that opened in January of 2018 called Waterfront. When you walk in, one of the first things you see is a giant map from 1879 uh, that depicts the waterfront just lined with docks and warehouses, not just in today's Dumbo, but really stretching all the way down along the Brooklyn waterfront. It's really impressive, and it and it underscores how, you know, before there were bridges and highways to divide up the districts into neighborhoods um, and into distinct geographical sections, Brooklyn really seemed like this massive unified mm-hmm. force, really, of waterfront uh, piers and warehouses stretching all along here. It appears, in fact, like a wall of warehouses, which gave rise to one of Brooklyn's nicknames at the time. It was referred to as the Walled City. This map is worth the price of admission because it really illustrates how completely developed it was by the mid-19th century. It looks like something from Game of Thrones, actually. I wouldn't be surprised if a little dragon had popped up out of one of the buildings on top of it. It has that almost medieval quality. But it's not part of Game of Thrones. It's actually Brooklyn, and it's part of the exhibit here at the Empire Stores. I have a dumb question. We call it Empire Stores, this structure today, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't a retail store. No, 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 no. Store as in storage. It was a warehouse. There were eight of these warehouses built between 1868 and 1885. Uh, So really the years, the decades just after the Civil War. And these were dark, cool storage areas, giant brick structures with arched doors and windows for easy access. Because they were dark and cool inside, they were perfect for storing coffee and sugar and molasses and other things like that that would come in very handy for the nearby factories. Yeah, millions of dollars worth of merchandise from all over the world. Which really brings us to the 1880s when Brooklyn was a major force in American manufacturing. It was, in fact, the fourth largest manufacturing center in the entire country behind New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia. So these warehouses and these factories um, in today's Dumbo were really a vital part of that Brooklyn industrial sector. It made Brooklyn rich. And most of the structures that are still found in today's Dumbo were built between the years of 1880 and 1930, during the heyday of this area's manufacturing. So now we're going to get into the nitty gritty of the great manufacturers of Brooklyn, of the Brooklyn waterfront. What kind of things did these factories produce? A really wide variety. You mentioned at the beginning sort of like a whole pantry, but not (laughs) just the pantry, not just consumer goods that we might consume, although that's part of it, uh, things that you eat or wear or clean yourself with, uh, like coffee, tea, sugar, uh, soap, shoes, but also things that you could use, goods, Packaging, cardboard boxes, cans, paint, kitchen supplies, Brillo pads, 
These were all things that were produced here in factories, just blocks from the waterfront. And these factories employed thousands of workers, many of whom were newly arriving immigrants and who lived in tenement buildings, uh, just blocks from the factories. You say this began in the 1880s. This is also, isn't the landscape of Brooklyn being transformed forever during this decade? Well, especially with the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1883, the area suddenly became much more accessible, of course. Um, And it would become even more accessible with the opening of the Manhattan Bridge in 1909. These bridges made it even easier to conduct trade because now you, you no longer had to take a ferry back and forth to check in on your factory or your warehouse. If you were a business based in Manhattan, you could just take the bridge over and you could even, and it was even easier to bring your goods back over to your office. And it was even easier to ship your goods out of Manhattan because you had two choices. You could cross over on the Brooklyn Bridge or you could cross over on the Manhattan Bridge. These bridges also allowed the company owners, the factory owners, the CEOs, Mm -hmm. to move further out into various areas of Brooklyn and, and build fine mansions in various neighborhoods throughout the future borough. Not to mention that two years after the Brooklyn Bridge opened, in 1885, the Brooklyn Elevated Railroad would arrive as well, and that connected Dumbo to many other parts of Brooklyn as well. And what about the F train? <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't come. Uh, the York Street stop wouldn't open until 1935. But all of these things, you know, the convenient location, the the waterfront docks, and the space to grow, the workers, everything, led to an industrial boom in the neighborhood. Because at the same time, it was only getting more difficult and costlier to manufacture in Manhattan. It was getting crowded there. Right. So by the 1880s, there are some really big players who open up factories here in Dumbo. Now, we have a few names assembled in front of us right now mm-hmm. who are very prominent leaders uh, in this neighborhood. But who do you think is the most important one? Well, you know, if when you walk around the neighborhood, there is one name that you see over and over emblazoned upon the reinforced concrete (laughs) of those facades, as if reinforcing their reputation. (laughs) The name Robert Gare, G-A-I-R, is easy to spot in those eight-story concrete buildings. He built, in fact, eight of them in the neighborhood. And Robert Gare, Greg, was the producer of paper goods... But most famously, the developer, nay, inventor of the cardboard box. Really? So basically, we can all move from apartment to apartment with ease because of his invention. Yeah, or have you ever put together one of those banker's boxes or, you know, one you get from Staples? They come kind of folded flat Mm -hmm. and you pick it up and then you have to follow one, two, three steps and fold down the middle part and the other flaps (laughs) over it. You know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about? Yeah. I mean, he kind of developed that. On top of cardboard boxes for packaging. Right. He did not actually develop the Staples folding box. (laughs) (laughs) But like the Happy Meal. (laughs) Or the Happy Meal. No. Um... According to legend, one day in 1879, he was already uh, making paper in a paper factory over on Reed Street in Manhattan. He was making paper bags, and he used a system that that used like uh, sharp knives mm-hmm. to fold the paper bags. And it seems that a knife slipped out of place and sliced its way down through an entire stack of bags, which led to uh, the discovery of a new way to produce cardboard boxes. 
that was the key. Cutting it in a certain way allowed for the 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 entire assembly to lay hmm. flat and then be reassembled into a box. So it was discovered by a happy accident. Well, it prevented his business from folding. In fact, he prospered so much so that he needed a new box factory. And so he looked around in the 1880s and constructed his first factory in Dumbo on Washington Street. So Dumbo is the kingdom of the cardboard box. Built upon the fortunes (laughs) of a cardboard box. His factories, though, interestingly enough, do not exhibit that kind of Gilded Age Beaux-Arts ornamentation that buildings in the city would wear. His look quite different. Well, his first factory was just a brick structure, but he was an innovator in constructing factories with reinforced concrete. In fact, when he built uh, 41 to 49 Washington Street, his new factory, in 1904, he built that out of reinforced concrete. And they they had huge benefits. They were much easier to construct. Uh, These were simple materials. They were fire resistant. They were much stronger so that they could support heavier machinery. And the concrete construction permitted the inclusion of giant windows, which would let in much more light and much more fresh air. And this was a movement of architecture. This was a style of architecture called the Daylight Factory. Right. And other factory owners would follow suit, and things would very quickly get very garish in Dumbo. (laughs) Although not to spoil anything, but these large windows would then later make them very attractive as loft apartments. Absolutely. And high ceilings. He would build seven more factories in reinforced concrete in the next 15 years. Uh, Three on Washington Street, three on Main Street, and one on York including, of course, one main street, uh, perhaps the most famous building in Dumbo. Yeah, it has a notable clock tower. If you're driving on the Manhattan Bridge coming onto or off of it, you cannot miss it. It's the most prominent building on the waterfront. And this collection of Gare factories would be referred to colloquially as Gareville. So help me unpack the the list of industrial leaders here. We now uh-huh. we have cardboard boxes, and who's next on the list? Let's head to 30 Main Street, where in 1908, another large reinforced concrete structure was built by the W.H. Sweeney Manufacturing Company, founded by three Sweeney brothers from Ontario. They made kitchenware. In fact, Greg... Do you know that the Sweeney's specialized in utensils for making meat pies? Alert. Sondheim joke. Alert. And not even a good one. <laughs> no, but seriously, Sweeney did make metal kitchen wares. But it's interesting because in the Sweeney building, they also made money by renting out space in their building. So they were also kind of like real estate speculators and developers at yeah, the same yeah. time. Yeah, so we're talking big industries, but in fact, these buildings would have many smaller ones that were leasing those spaces. Maybe one of those kitchenware items that they were making could be a can opener. Oh, perhaps <laughs> to open a can that would have been produced at the E.W. Bliss uh, Manufacturing Company which took up an entire block in the in the building still there between Plymouth, John Adams and Pearl Streets. Now, the Bliss Company manufactured machines uh, starting in the 1870s. And so theirs was a very industrial uh, factory. You know, they try to make it through this with me, Greg. They mm-hmm. stamped out sheets of tin, copper, iron, so on. I saw an example they made 
um, a quote automatic shearing machine for muck bars. <laughs> I don't know what that is. That next Got to the that? is that next to the Snickers? <laughs> no, a, a muck bar is not next to the Snicker or even the Altoids. <laughs> They would they would use these machines then to start making cans, not really cans of food, I don't think, more like cans of paint and kerosene, and would even experiment with producing early automobiles. By the 1910s, they had more than 1,600 employees. Now, I agree with you that Gare is the most important person in the history of Dumbo. Well, that's quite a claim. But I can identify the second most important people. John and Charles Arbuckle. Their legacy may be important to many New Yorkers because John in particular, his claim to fame was he was the coffee king. Did you say John Arbuckle? John Arbuckle. Isn't he... That was not the name of Garfield's owner (laughs) in the the comic strip Garfield, was it? By Jim Davis? Well... (laughs) I mean, that is neither here or there, and that was lasagna, not coffee. But yes, they're both named John Arbuckle. (laughs) Anyway, this John Arbuckle and Charles, his brother, were born in Allegheny City, Pennsylvania, which has actually been incorporated into today's Pittsburgh. Now, they began roasting coffee in Pittsburgh. They moved to New York in 1871 and then into Brooklyn one decade later. So they came over in the 1880s as well. Yeah. Uh, They did not, however, like bring coffee with them. The New York Harbor was already hugely important to coffee distribution in New York. In fact, they handled over 85% of America's entire coffee supply. 85% of the nation's coffee? Yeah. All that caffeine flowed through New York Harbor. It it really dripped through, actually. (laughs) But Arbuckle is special. He did something that changed the world, and he did it here in Dumbo. So mysterious. What did he do? Well, we have to understand how people drank coffee before Arbuckle came along. Before him, people bought raw coffee beans. They were unroasted. They were green. You would take the beans, and you would put them on the stove. You'd put them in a pan or in a kettle. Mm Mm-hmm. Arbuckle would actually pre-roast the beans. He would glaze them in an egg and sugar solution and then put them in a roasting machine of Arbuckle's own invention. To quote specifically from the, the Dumbo Historic Designation Report, quote, Arbuckle's factory was responsible for filling, weighing, sealing, and labeling the packages so that they could be efficiently shipped throughout the world and sold in small packages to consumers. So he he roasted them, then uh-huh. he put them in paper bags. That perhaps he bought from Robert Gare. They were friends. It's they're allies. Most likely that's true. He would sell those bags of coffee beans and call them Ariosa or Ariosa. And that whole process from from roasting to packaging was done here in Dumbo? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, even more than that, really, because the beans themselves were shipped in from Brazil or other places and were eventually stored right here on the waterfront in those warehouses. In fact, Empire Stores, which you spoke about earlier. Right. Well, by 1920, a little bit further in the story, Arbuckle would eventually take that over and store his coffee beans there. 
Which made sense because it was dark and it was cool. Mm-hmm. By this time, the Arbuckles had a network of buildings very similar to Gare. In fact, you probably could have called it Arbuckleville or Arbuckle Town if you <laughs> wanted to. rolls off the tongue. Now, Tom, how do you like your coffee? I I like my coffee uh, like I like I like my history, <laughs> rich and surprising. Oh oh, do do you like it a little sweet? Not really. Wh- why do you ask? Well, because by 1897, the Arbuckles also got into the sugar business, and they had a refinery at 10 J Street, right on the waterfront at J and John. Wow, so they had coffee and sugar. Yeah, and that sugar wasn't to, like, stir into the coffee, but it was used in the roasting process. But wait, J Street and Empire stores are blocks apart. How were they even moving supplies between these different buildings? Well, this is another thing that Arbuckle introduced into the neighborhood. By 1904, he had funded the construction of a railroad, the J Street Connecting Railroad. Now, today it gives Dumbo its magnificent charm, I think, because... It makes it a real trip. (laughs) You have that the Belgian block road, Mm-hmm. And so with the people, some people call cobblestones. And then on some of the streets, you still also have these embedded railroad tracks. Well, these were part of the J Street Connecting Railroad. They not only led to and from Arbuckle's properties, but other businesses were soon signed on to this as well. And some of the tracks even pull into the buildings. And you can still see evidence of that today. So suddenly you're, pa- you're painting a picture of Dumbo that's quite... Crowded, right? There were, <laughs> yeah. The streets seem pretty packed and active. You've got thousands of factory workers. You have carts being like hauled around by locomotive engines. <laughs> yes, they would. They would have a dummy engine, uh, but it, and they wouldn't go very fast, obviously. Still, but they're they're they are active trains mm-hmm. um, at street grade, and then there were, I take it, also horses. Yeah, so in the mixed with all of this, of course, is there's stables for the hundreds of horses that are that are being put into service to move these goods around. So needless to say, between thousands of horses, railroad tracks, and Belgian blocks, walking around on those streets was no easy task. No, no. And then also by 1904, I should add that there is a massive construction project (laughs) happening right. right here in the middle because, of course, they are building the Manhattan Bridge. Construction began in 1901, and it opened in 1909. And that is taking place right overhead. Yes. Construction of the bridge required the demolition of hundreds of buildings, but work never stopped for Gare or Arbuckle, although some maybe some of the workers stopped for a little cup of coffee or maybe a cup of tea. Tea? Was was Arbuckle making tea as well? No. There was another concern focused on the manufacture of tea. In fact, they were also a set of brothers. So you had the Arbuckle brothers Mm -hmm. making their name in coffee, and then you had the Jones brothers making their name in tea. Their company was called the Grand Union Tea Company. Founded by Cyrus, Frank, and Charles from Scranton, Pennsylvania. More brothers from Pennsylvania. More more Pennsylvania brothers, yeah. 
Their headquarters were at 68 J Street, which was built in 1915, and they sat right next to Arbuckle. So it's you had literally had coffee and tea right next to mm. each other on the street. Also like Arbuckle, they innovated the sale of tea. They had 200 retail stores and are considered one of the first chain retailers in the United States. Although, actually, by 1915, I should say that they're actually selling more than tea. They're widening their scope here. They actually got into the grocery game. What, they started opening up grocery stores? Yes, they owned grocery stores and then shipped items other than tea from their Dumbo location into those grocery stores. In 1917, they reportedly shipped 32 million pounds of coffee from this plant, as well as 4 million pounds of tea, then each day they shipped 20,000 pounds of baking soda and 120,000 cakes of soap. Were they making their own coffee or they were selling Arbuckle's They were selling Arbuckle's coffee and possibly other companies as well. They were becoming distributors. Well, you could basically stock an entire store with merchandise made, (laughs) with with products made right there in the neighborhood. Mm Mm-hmm. But back to the soap. <laughs> Who were they getting the soap from? I, I take it they weren't making their soap. Well, I imagine much of it was coming from their neighbor over at Bridge Street and Plymouth Street. The company Kirkman and Sons, who had a complex of eight buildings for the production of soap. Tom, do you know how they made soap back then? Um, well, so, it's a lot of blubber, right? Yeah, some of the ingredients are rather unorthodox today. For instance, at 37 Bridge Street, the building that's there today, it's very expensive condos. It's a beautiful building. This building was solely for the storage of animal fats. Okay, a warehouse of fat. Yes. Next door, that fat would be rendered into glycerin. Okay. And then in the other buildings, that would then be, of course, cut into bars of soap and then wrapped and shipped out. But all told, a pretty clean operation. (laughs) And speaking of soap, another company that would open about the same time in the 19-teens would be the Brillo Manufacturing Company. Oh, right. The the steel wool sponge that you use to clean out skillets. Exactly. And precisely, they were being used uh, because cooking habits were changing at this period. People were ditching their cast iron, replacing them with aluminum pots and pans. But aluminum, however, would blacken on the stove, and they needed to be constantly scrubbed of that black residue. So in the early 1900s, two men came up with a way to scrub the grime off uh, with a very special steel wool scrubber that when used in tandem with a special rouge soap uh, that was used to polish jewelry, Uh, would really be very effective in cleaning those aluminum pots and pans. So they went into business with their attorney to form the Brillo Manufacturing Company in 1913, uh, soon opening a manufacturing plant in Dumbo at 200 Water Street and in various other spots as well. So Brillo pads were made in Dumbo. Yes, although a little Brillo trivia for you, (laughs) Greg. They would not actually put the soap the rouge soap inside the, uh, the the scrubbing pads until the 1930s. But yes, that innovation <laughs> would take place here in Dumbo, uh, and they would operate in Dumbo until 1955. Now, we can 
clearly go on and on here as now that we're in the 20th century there are like mail order businesses of all different types also through Dumbo you know it was thriving at the beginning of the century but by the 1930s around the Great Depression New York's entire industrial fabric was facing serious problems as you for many reasons that we've gone into in other shows and improved transportation techniques were encouraging companies to move out to the suburbs and to move to other states lured by more space where they could build larger companies and lured by tax incentives and things like that. You know, you also had a deterioration of infrastructure because now this has been a vibrant waterfront for many, many decades. So things were starting to look a little worse for wear. Many of these big companies that we talked about are shipping out. Like the Gares, they mm-hmm. leave their buildings here for us to enjoy today, but they would actually leave the neighborhood in 1927. Yeah, they headed off to Piermont, New York. Bliss would get out of there in 1933. The Kirkman's soap business would be out of business by World War II. Brillo would stay on, but only until the mid-century. Until 1955. But of course, Brillo pads are still manufactured today in Ohio. But perhaps the biggest change to the neighborhood, which would affect it in more unfortunate ways, was in 1924, that was the last ferry that left Fulton Ferry Landing, because now... People didn't use the ferry. They preferred using those bridges and other kinds of transportation, including automobiles. So that would bring additional challenges to the neighborhood here into the 20th century. And there were major changes to the waterfront as well. By by the 1950s, the Port Authority had taken over most of the control of the waterfront. And they had tried to modernize it uh, by demolishing some of the old skinny piers uh, that jutted out into the East River. They demolished 25 piers and 130 warehouses and other storage areas. Wow. I mean, because they were um, ancient and inadequate. Right. And they thought that, you know, in the 1960s, that by constructing new, larger piers, they could perhaps revitalize the area. So they constructed 13 new, larger docks uh, between the Brooklyn Bridge and down to Red Hook. Unfortunately, at the same time in the 1960s, there was a huge global change in the way that things were shipped. That would be the introduction of containerized shipping, in which products and materials were shipped in huge metal containers uh, that could be brought off the ship and loaded onto the back of a truck and trucked off via interstate highways to distribution points or wherever they were going. It's what it's what we still use today. Yeah. And suddenly it made a lot more sense for those ships to unload in New Jersey uh, where they could just head straight off into the interstate highway. That was more convenient than being shipped into the middle of Brooklyn, even though by the 1960s they could get on to the BQE, which had opened in 1951. By the 1960s, things are looking a little grim around here. It's quite transformed. Many of those large industrial plants now have smaller firms in there, but the whole, the whole area itself is deteriorating quite badly. But what was grim to some people was an opportunity to many others. We'll get to Dumbo's turnaround after this. This show is actually one of three shows that is a special partnership with WeWork, a platform for creators providing more than 200,000 members around the world with space, 
community, and services through both physical and digital offerings. WeWork currently has more than 200 physical locations in more than 66 cities and 20 countries around the world, and 50 of those are located here in New York. If you're not familiar with these spaces, they are beautiful spaces. They're collaborative. Uh, they offer physical spaces uh, for teams of any size. But they also have these wonderful open shared spaces as well, uh, where you can enjoy a nice cup of Lakalum coffee, beer on draft. People who join WeWork, WeWork members, help each other's businesses thrive. They share space with different industries and people from different walks of life who help each other's business thrive by sharing advice, business ideas, and even services. So as Greg mentioned, this is the first of three shows mm -hmm. that is that has been produced in tandem with WeWork. And we have gotten to work in several WeWork spaces, including one, believe it or not, located in the neighborhood that is our subject today, <laughs> right. Dumbo. It's the WeWork Dumbo Heights location that's, that is located really at the base of the Manhattan Bridge. I actually did some Bowery Boys research while looking over the Manhattan Bridge from, from, a, from a space here at the uh, WeWork Dumbo location. And I checked out the space yesterday and had a little tour. Did you know, Greg, that they have their own beer that is brewed by Randolph Beer, uh, which is located on the ground floor of this location, and their offices are also upstairs in the WeWork space. They made their own WeWork brew. Well, I was there in the morning, so I didn't partake in the beer. But I guess in spirit of the neighborhood, I had plenty of coffee. Was it Arbuckle coffee? <laughs> So for more information, head to WeWork.com for details on not only the Dumbo location, but on all the locations throughout New York and throughout the world. And get this, one Lucky Bowery Boys listener can win a one-month free hot desk at a WeWork simply by going to we.co slash Bowery Boys Hot Desk. And stay tuned because in less than two weeks on March 14th, we'll be throwing a little Bowery Boys trivia party at a WeWork in Brooklyn. So stay tuned for details. And now back to the show. So this area is in a real downhill slide, needless to say, here in the 1960s. It's not looking productive or nor fashionable. And by the 1970s, something was happening here that was happening all over the city. And we, we talked about it last year in our show on Soho. Artists were looking for affordable spaces to work and to live. They were finding, you know, abandoned or underused warehouses and factories in Soho. And they were also looking and finding them here in the Dumbo area in the late 1970s. And we should mention that at about the same time in 1977, the area just south of here, um, around the Fulton Ferry Landing area, was designated a historic district in 1977. So areas near here were beginning to get recognized. And let me add that contained in the Fulton Ferry Historic District was the old Empire Stores, as well as the old warehouse next to it. That's in 77, and as the story goes, in 1978, some artists who had moved into this area coined the term Dumbo for the neighborhood. Intentionally, Greg, choosing an unattractive, even 
silly name for the neighborhood (laughs) to keep potential developers away because they thought, well, if we come up with a really silly or stupid sounding name, unlike, you know, what happened in Soho or in Tribeca, where they, they came up with these cute, these acronyms that would actually, that would attract new development. They thought that by choosing a silly name, they could detract <laughs> or repel development. <laughs> well, they should have called it Goofy, maybe, not Dumbo. <laughs> or Scooby. <laughs> Velma. And it seems like it kind of worked, really. I mean, throughout most of the 80s and 90s, a real artistic community developed down here in these mostly abandoned spaces. An underground enclave, if that, you will. Right. And one that still existed by 1997 when Peter Marx wrote in the New York Times, chic it isn't. It has no smoke-filled coffee houses, no upscale galleries, no boutiques with exposed brick and refinished floors and racks of black mini dresses. Most hours of the day, the indifferently paved streets lined with air conditioner repair shops and auto body garages are as deserted as the seedy back alleys and wharves depicted in grainy episodes of The Naked City. And yet this moody streetscape is anything but a fossil of the old industrial New York. Behind the grimy windows of the slice of Brooklyn known as Dumbo, everything is freshly minted. Watercolorists and sculptors, actors and writers, filmmakers and collagists in search of affordable workspace and common ground have moved to this cast-off neighborhood, contributing to its growing reputation as a haven for artists of all stripes. This is sort of paralleling what's happening a little bit further north in the neighborhood of Williamsburg, where Mm -hmm. a similar movement is happening. Yeah. But here in Dumbo, who actually owns all of these buildings? What's what's going on with ownership by this time? Well, by by the late 70s and early 80s, many were owned by major developers, um, including Helmsley Spear, who owned all of those Gare buildings that we were talking, all of Gareville. Mm Mm-hmm. But in 1981, all of the Gare buildings were purchased by a real estate developer named David Walentis, uh, who ran a company called Two Trees Management Company. Walentis bought, get this, two million square feet of space, all those Gare buildings, for the sum of $12 million, or $6 a square foot. Do you know, Greg? What is today the average square footage <laughs> price of, uh, of a loft well, in Dumbo? I'm assuming there's a slight inflation from that original purchase price. I looked it up this morning on Zillow. Not $6, but $1,500 a square foot is the average price. Now, obviously, Walentis and the other developers that would follow two trees into the area would have to invest heavily in redeveloping these structures they were certainly not up to code. A lot had to go into making them into modern living and workspaces. Well, I imagine decades of manufacturing coffee, cardboard boxes, and soap certainly ha- did a number on the interiors of many of these buildings. Sure, but remember that many of them were made with reinforced concrete, so they were up to the job. The first building that they'd fix up, in fact, was one main street, the Watchtower building, which they converted to luxury apartments in 1998. And many, many of the other Gare buildings and other structures would follow, obviously. Which brings us to a really, you know, fascinating and vital part of Dumbo's modern history. 
which is the story of gentrification and redevelopment. It's a story of these, the continued existence of these very buildings that we're talking about. The developers here chose to preserve those buildings even before they were landmarked. I feel like even though the history of the neighborhood is cherished more than ever, as a result of all these really big changes, many of these artists who had moved in here in the 1980s, they were displaced by this kind of new wave of gentrification and these new wave of industries that are coming in. Yes, and that's even part of the irony of this story as well, is that artists were able to live in this, to live and work out of these spaces in Dumbo, um, partially because the management company here they were patrons of the arts in many ways. They were supporting and giving subsidized or lower than market rents to artists. And at the same time, it was those artists who were making the neighborhood more desirable to higher paying tenants who, in many cases, would replace them. And this is a story that's being repeated in various neighborhoods throughout the city. Yes, Turns out gentrification is a tricky business. <laughs> is the area protected today? Yes. 18 years ago, in 2000, 95 of these buildings were grouped together as the Dumbo Historic District, and they were listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And then seven years later, the New York Landmarks Preservation Commission designated it a historic district, uh, which gave it further protections and benefits. And around that time, then, there was a lot of news and new attention paid to Dumbo uh, with this new designation. What's interesting about modern Dumbo right now is we've actually been spending a lot of our time in this show more inland, talking mm -hmm. about these factories. But this story actually goes back to its beginning, to the importance of this area in the first place was its waterfront. And in fact, that's where a lot of activity has taken place here. But especially in the past 10 years, when construction started on the redevelopment of the waterfront in 2008 into Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is just this massive project that we have watched unfold before uh -huh. us. It, it wraps all the way from Dumbo, all the way down around Brooklyn Heights, all the way down to Red Hook and Atlantic Avenue. It's an amazing undertaking that involves the redevelopment of piers and docks into playgrounds and ball courts and restaurants, a carousel, uh, Jane's Carousel, by the way, which is named for Jane Walentis uh, because she and David gifted it to the city, and much more. And in fact, Empire Stores uh, is part of that whole redevelopment. During the construction of that park in 2012 came Superstorm Sandy, Hurricane Sandy, which really hit Dumbo quite hard because a lot of this area is landfill. Mm -hmm. So it couldn't really protect itself from the rising seawaters. I walked down here a couple days after Sandy hit and it was extremely underwater in many places. The water had receded on some blocks, but you could see that it had, it had risen to a devastating height. Millions of dollars of damage as it took forever to literally bail them out. And we all remember, you know, the iconic site of uh, the carousel partially underwater. We should also mention another change that has taken place in the 21st century. And that's really a transition from being a hot art neighborhood into one that is more defined by tech companies and startups, uh, not to mention high-end apartments and lofts. 
Even while there's still some performing arts powerhouses down in Dumbo, like the incredible St. Anne's Warehouse, but still an incredible one-fourth of the city's tech companies are now based in Dumbo, creating a kind of tech hub down here. And it isn't just startups, but there are huge uh, nationally recognized brands that are based out of Dumbo, including Etsy um, and also West Elm, which has its corporate headquarters in the famous Empire Stores building. In fact, if you'd like to begin your tour of Dumbo, your wandering, which mm-hmm. I hope you all do, you should start it at the Empire Stores building because it's, it's perhaps the most historic structure. From the rooftop, you have a breathtaking view of the East River and the two bridges. Then go down to the Brooklyn Historical Society Gallery and check out their new show on the Brooklyn Waterfront. Speaking of Brooklyn Historical Society, we want to thank Julie Golia um, for showing us around there yesterday and point out that she is a co-host of the Brooklyn Historical Society's podcast called Flatbush and Maine. Uh, She hosts with her co-host Zahir Ali, and they have a fantastic episode, number 15 from last summer, about the history of Empire Stores. So you can check that out as well. For some fascinating images of what this era used to look like back when it was Dumbo, back when it was Gareville, and perhaps even one or two from when it was Olympia, check out our website, BarryBoysHistory.com. A huge thanks to our patrons who have joined us with their support at patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash boweryboys. And patrons should have already received an email invite to our upcoming party. So if you didn't see that, double check your emails. It's only because of you that we're able to spend so much time producing the show. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' cold coffee can be brewed in your Keurig coffee maker and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's cold K-cup pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be.